0: Have you ever wondered how to secure your company and the value associated with technology, intellectual property, even if you're just a small five-man shop? Have you ever thought about the risk associated with your technology? Well, today I had the opportunity to visit with Brandon Fisher of the Mako Group. And the Mako Group is a cyber security type company and what they do is, is they test. They go in and and try to infiltrate your infrastructure to see, you know, just where the chinks in the armor are because, you know, we live in a, a day and age where data can be stolen and resold on the dark web. I had the opportunity to visit with them and I have to tell you it's a, a, not so much concerning but it makes you pause and wonder am I secure? So, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Brandon Fisher. Please welcome, please welcome, welcome. This is another episode of the Defenders of Business Value podcast, a podcast where we talk about what makes a business valuable, learn the tips and tactics to increase your company's value that only veteran dealmakers know. And now, here's your host, Ed Micelland. I'm your host, Ed Meisigland. I teach business owners how to build value and identify and remove risks in their business so that one day they can sell their business at maximum value when they want, how they want, and to whom they want. I'm so excited to welcome Brandon Fisher from the Mako Group. I was at a event at Butler University and I got to talking to Brandon about, you know, just different things about technology and how it detracts from value. So, I asked him if he would uh, be willing to come and talk to us about, you know, the things that detract as well as improve value of a business as it relates to technology and security. So, Brandon, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. So, if you don't mind, can you give just kind of a high-level overview of you and the MAKO Group. I know that you're doing an awful lot in this space, and and I think our audience would really appreciate just kind of understanding what it is you guys do.
1: Absolutely. I work for a company called the MAKO Group. We're headquartered out of Indianapolis, and we're a cyber risk and assurance-based group. So we, we do really a few different things. We do risk assessments, IT auditing, and then security pen testing. I've been with Mega Group for about seven years, and in my time there, I've done a little bit of everything on the sun there at the Mega Group. Right now, I manage and focus on managing our security testing team. We have a team of about five individuals on the security team. We perform network and application-based assessments for organizations. A lot of organizations do the testing for compliance reasons, but we're finding a lot of organizations these days are, are doing it just to bolster their own security and, and to generally do better. We do the assessments and provide feedback and recommendations to businesses and try to make their recommendations reasonable, affordable. A lot of the places, I think, improving security needs to be costly. And we try to spell that myth and, and show them that doesn't need to be costly by looking at the people, processes, and technology and taking a risk-based approach.
0: So when you talk about penetration... And the funny thing, so when I bring this up to, to small business owners about as far as their technology, what do they have? What are, the, what are they looking? What do they need to secure? You know, the first thing is we have a website and we have email. The funny thing is when we're talking about newsletter lists and things like that, those are all assets and need to be locked down. So. To the business owner that's that has no clue that this is even a, a risk in their business, I mean, talk about the the penetration testing that you're doing and, and what that means to small business owners.
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right there. A lot of people don't understand what all they have that that's a component of risk to the organization. It's more than just your email server and your and your website. Uh, you're, a lot of people are running things like remote remote services, so users VPN to the network. How are they VPNing in? and how, how are they getting access to those internal resources. Uh, there's also firewalls that are externally facing, web applications that maybe take sensitive information, personal information that you're collecting and then storing in a database that is all externally facing. Those are all uh, attack vectors or points of entry into the network. And that that's what we focus on first is the external perimeter, how can we get into the network. The next step of that too is assuming you've had a breach or assuming there's somebody on your network what can they do once they're on your internal network? And once we get into the internal network, the endpoints increase dramatically. Now we're looking at printers, workstations, security cameras, IP phones, IoT devices, thermostats, and, and TVs, and, and whatever else might be on the network. Once we get on that internal network, the attack service increases dramatically, and we can do a lot more
0: uh, interesting things. You said thermostat. What can they do with a thermostat?
1: So the thermostat, you know, there's you're not gonna be able to do the same thing, obviously the workstation. You're not gonna be able to get in there and and get data off of it. But what we can do is is try to get into that thermostat if it's controlling something like say a data center data closet and there maybe we can (laughs) turn the thermostat off or turn it Uh, up or, or just something like that to damage the equipment.
0: Wow. Huh. So, to the business owner saying, "You know what? I'm 100% cloud based. I use Google, Google Suites. You know what? What could possibly happen? Isn't it incumbent on the Google, on Salesforce, on all my virtual assets? Isn't it on them to protect? What do I need to worry about?"
1: So that that's partially true. So these cloud providers should be issuing reports, call a SOC two report. And in that report, it will outline the security controls that they have taken to protect your data and your information. That report is also going to outline the steps that you are required to do as a user. So things like making sure you have a strong password policy in place. That's not Google's responsibility. That'll be the end user's responsibility to make sure that is deployed uh, correctly throughout the enterprise. So just because you're using a cloud-based solution doesn't mean that you're off the hook completely. There's still things... Um, as an organization, you need to review and consider uh, when when deploying those things.
0: When a buyer shows up, a buyer is looking at a, a particular business, and the entire point of their analysis is to, to identify and, and figure out how they can mitigate their risk in the acquisition. Most overlooked areas that we find is the cyber footprint. So not only the infrastructure, but also the virtual, what's outward facing and how do I control it? If I'm a buyer... And I'm looking at that business. What's my checklist of things that I'm hoping not to find? And, and better yet, how do I find them? Or when do I know I need to employ someone like you?
1: So We actually work with businesses quite frequently when they're going through the acquisition phase to kind of evaluate the firm they're trying to purchase or, or acquire there. Uh, a couple of things to, to consider when when looking at this and evaluating an organization, have they done a pen test within the last 12 months and what were the results of that pen test? So if there's anything higher critical within that pen test report, you know, what what the action plan doesn't necessarily need to be remediated at this time. But what is there at least an action plan in place? Are they are they taking action to, to correct these things?
0: So a pen test means penetration test, right?
1: Yes. Penetration test. Where we're, act, where we're trying to simulate an attack from a malicious threat actor.
0: I can tell you, I would imagine that I'm certain you probably know better than I. Our business is really doing penetration testing every couple of years or with in your case every year?
1: A lot of organizations are required to do it every year. So some of the ones that are maybe under compliance or regulatory requirements, they are doing it every year. And then we're finding a lot of firms that don't have that requirement are are still doing them frequently. It may not be every year, maybe every 18 months, but they are still doing on a pretty, pretty frequent and reoccurring basis.
0: So describe what a penetration test is. I mean, how, how do you orchestrate that and, I, I know when we were when we were visiting at Butler, I'm, it was pretty interesting how how you were doing it and the surprises to those folks that were in charge and had no idea where you were going to come in at. So talk about what how the penetration test works and, and what do you do?
1: The first step in the penetration test is going to be to identify our rules of engagement. And this is where we're going to outline what we're allowed to do, when we're allowed to do it, and how we're allowed to do it. Once we have all those rules set, we have the time set on the calendar, we, we go ahead and start doing our, doing our thing. This is all done remotely. We're trying to simulate a, a third-party malicious attack on the organization. So from our offices, then, we'll try to attack the provided systems. On an external pen test, what we're going to try to do first is pass the reconnaissance. We're going to go out there and try to find as much information on the organization as we can without actually touching their systems. And there's a couple of tools we'll primarily rely for this. Things like Shodan or Census, those tools go out there and do a scan of the internet uh, on a frequent basis. And then we can go out there and search their results and see what we can find on the organization. This allows us to get a footprint without actually touching the system without showing that we're preparing for an attack on the, on the system.
0: So let me stop you there. So what is it? What does it find? I'm just sitting here saying, okay, so you you put this out. What are the results of, or what, or what does something like that look like? We're
1: going to be able to go out there and see what services are specifically running on that system. So are they running a remote desktop server that's uh, accessible from the okay. Internet? And what what version are they running? Are they running a IIS web server, or are they running a NGINX web server in, in what version? So we'll be able to go out there and just start pulling version and service information.
0: Anybody can see that as as long as they have this kind of platform to to search.
1: Yes, and these tools are, are free and accessible to anyone. So anyone's go um, out there right now and start searching that information. Uh, keep going. <laughs> the next thing we're going to look for is exposed maybe passwords, your usernames or email addresses that we can find. So we're going to use LinkedIn first and foremost. We can go out there and start trying to look for people within the organization that maybe we can use for email phishing or try to reverse engineer some email addresses or usernames. We're also going to use a tool called uh, WeLeak Info that is similar to the Halide and Pond database. You can go out there and search the WeLeak Info website and find clear text passwords that have maybe been leaked and other data breaches that are on the dark web. They're out there in a searchable format. We can go out there and search them. And if people are reusing their passwords or haven't changed them since the last data breach that they were involved in. We're still using them. We can go
0: out there and try to do some credentialed spraying or stuffing attacks on the organization. So that was a lot. So you can go into LinkedIn and identify potential targets for, I mean, what does a target look like? I mean, is it lower level folks or is it the, uh, the upper level that, that you would assume I hate to, to say it, but let's just say the older generation. And you know, where they have one password that's that's universal for everything that they do. Is that the the targets? Where where's the risk here?
1: So it, it kinda depends on where where we're going with the attack. If we're doing some kind of social engineering attack, I usually look at job tiles. I'm trying to find somebody who would likely send out the message I've crafted a lot of time that's HR or IT related. So I'm looking for their their positions or roles within the company. Other times we are looking for um, maybe uh, somebody we believe would reuse passwords or share the same password or something like that. And sometimes that is the older generation. Sometimes that's uh, the less technical folks who maybe are working on a manufacturing floor or in an office somewhere that that don't understand
0: all the risks within IT. Then what's your take like on like LastPass or OnePass, or I'm trying to think of, there's a couple others that are basically a password manager that you go, so you go to a website, it populates a username and password and you're off to the races. Is that slow anything down or no?
1: I am a big fan of tools like LastPass. I use LastPass myself. With any of those tools, however, you still have to make sure you have those configured correctly. You can still put things like multi-factor authentication in place, you can make sure they're not signed in all the time. They're obviously putting all your passwords in one place is still a big risk. But there are ways to, to mitigate that risk. And I think it's a great tool to make sure users are using unique, strong passwords and not writing them down.
0: I use LastPass, too, and, and it's great to use. It works on your cell phone. And I think to, everybody just doesn't understand is how universal this thing or these types of platforms are. And it's really not as inconvenient as you might think to employ them. IP theft. When I say IP, I'm talking um, intellectual property that's a big thing you know I know you know it's in the news about Chinese coming in and stealing our intellectual property from from various companies and stuff what's the challenge to locking that down I mean it's password protected and there's all kinds of barriers to prevent theft but yet it still keeps happening is it more internal or external infiltration intellectual property and what does the business owner have to do in order to lock it down
1: it's a great question. The first step in locking down any intellectual property is going to be identify what intellectual property you have and where it lives. A lot of organizations assume that it is on a single server, and that's all they need to protect at that server. When in reality, your users are transferring that all over the network, maybe sending it to their desktops, it's doing it to other places um, that you're not aware of. So identifying what the data is and where it lives is the first step in securing that intellectual property. The next step is going to be create a bubble around that. When I say bubble, I mean all your security controls that you're applying to protect that data. You only need to apply it really to everywhere the data lives and moves. There's no need to apply it to every workstation within the environment. You can apply it to that that select um, work environment, and then you can save some money and resources there by not applying it to everywhere. So once you identify where it lives, you create that bubble, and now you can start applying some controls around that to, to protect
0: that data. I can hear in the mind of the business owner right now saying, oh, my God, that's one more thing I have to do. How difficult is it for a business owner to lock this down? I mean, what, what does that mean?
1: A lot of organizations equate security to buying a box or buying some kind of software and protecting their environment. What we'd like to do is kind of bring that back to the people, process, and technology. We want to get to the root of, of everything here. Do you have the proper policies in place, and are they being implemented? Doing simple things and basic things like setting up proper access controls, making sure you have a strong password policy in place, making sure users have uh, the little privileges needed to do their job. Things like that can make sure that you're, you're locking down the environment without going out there and spending a ton of money. There are things that kind of come back to the the beginning of security, Some basic core principles that still apply a day and and they don't require a ton of uh, money or or new tools to actually implement.
0: So since the world is continues to get smaller and smaller and and people are using platforms like Fiverr, Upwork, there is the sharing of files or there's a sharing of Dropbox or sharing of, of a Google folder. When you're doing that, how do you lock that down? I mean, or can you lock that down? Because I know a lot of business owners, you know, they're, they're using, instead of uh, using internal sources, it's cheaper for them to go to Fiverr or wherever to get some external help. So, but at the same time, you're, you are opening your infrastructure to that contractor. So, how do you lock that down? Or do you?
1: Yeah, I think this comes back again to those SOC 2 reports. Those SOC 2 reports are going to tell you exactly what what do you need to do to, to protect your data. And within those things like Dropbox or, or Google Drive or whatever cloud sharing uh, servers you might be using, you can set permissions, um, sometimes file-based, sometimes folder-based, but you can set specific permissions on each of those to make sure the data within that is locked down and then what the user can do within that. Are users allowed to just read it? Can they download it? Can they send it to somebody? Um, you can set all those individual permissions within that folder to lock it down.
0: Mm, I didn't, I didn't know you could prevent it from being forwarded, like in Google or Dropbox. I, I, I did not know that part.
1: Yeah, all of them are going to be a little bit different on, on what they can do, but so the bigger ones usually have that that kind of permissions. I know, I know the one we use internally will allow us to limit the, the, who we can for a particular folder to prevent the the unauthorized sharing of, of data internally.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, we have data rooms and things like that where we can dump our deals in and then control who gets to see what, when, and, and limit it there. But I, and I'll have to investigate whether or not Dropbox and and Google, because that's the one, those are the two primary ones that most of the business owners at our level are, are using. So, and I would assume most in the audience are at least have some exposure to that. So, what are the most targeted industries?
1: So that, that's kind of a tough question. It really depends on how you're looking at it. <laughs> I think financial services is probably the most targeted based on the the cost of the attack and the number of wrecks exposed. Oh, Healthcare sure. is also hit a lot with ransomware. And I think these two industries are, are targeted a lot because they're under a lot of compliance. And what a, lot of, a lot of organizations think compliance equals security, and what we find time and time again is just because you comply with whatever regulatory guidance is, you're, you're under or you're meeting those regulatory requirements doesn't mean that you're, you're actually secure and you might be missing, missing the mark on some other areas. The regulatory guidances aren't always the most direct. They can sometimes be vague on how things should be implemented. And they're also not always all encompassing. A lot of the regulatory guidances may not touch on specific things like maybe vendor risk management or tell you exactly what, how you should implement your password policy. So the organizations maybe are missing those kinds of things and leave themselves open to, to potential attacks.
0: So the business owner that's thinking, well, you know what, I'm off the radar. I mean, I, I'm too small. I've I've got 10 people here in the, in the office, you know, we're, we're not susceptible for to be attacked. Is that true? I, I, I say no. I think, I think
1: you're right on that. I think small businesses are still a victim and a target. 43% 43% of small businesses in 2019 were, were a victim of some kind of cyber attack or incident.
0: Really? And so I know just speaking, you know, to a lot of, you know, old and I, and I keep bringing up older, but you know, those that, that didn't necessarily grow up with computers, but you know, just use them as a tool. It's hard to determine what link not to click. And you find that, that most of the time, I'm hoping you can confirm this. It's not, you know, they're attacking you. You're just opening the door and, and welcoming, welcoming them in. Is that the way it, it, it works for the small business owner?
1: Yeah. I think that's one of the primary ways attackers are getting uh, through, through firewalls and primary security devices is through social engineering and email phishing. They're sending those out. Users are clicking those or entering their credentials into a phishing website and providing access to the attackers.
0: Well, I'll, I'll tell you two of the ones that, that, it used to be Dropbox. You know, I sent you a uh, a link in Dropbox, and that would that would start it. And then then DocuSign. We're, we've seen a number a number from DocuSign. Is there other platforms that the big phishing schemes are coming through on?
1: I think a couple that I've seen lately. One of my favorite ones to use during our assessments is sometimes UPS and, and a UPS delivery notification. Oh, wow. We've also seen an uptick in Office 365 and trying to spoof. The Office 365 login page for maybe SharePoint or or email, wow. yeah. And then since we're in the, since we're in the midst of this this pandemic right now, there's also been a large uptick in coronavirus related yeah. uh, email phishing scams.
0: Yeah, and that's so terrible. I think there hopefully there's a. Special place in hell for folks that are capitalizing on on that, and you know what? And you you had turned me on to the 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 podcast uh, Darknet Diaries, and and you know the funny thing is, you know, not all these people are. It's more gamified than it is malicious, and so I retract my you know go to hell kind of thing. When someone infiltrates you and takes something, what are they going to do with it? I mean, what's the going rate on an email address or what's the going rate on a, on a telephone number that, you know, we're all now getting robo called. What's the point? That's a
1: good question. I mean, when, when swing infiltrates an organization and, and tries to steal data, you know, a lot of times it's just for, for, for the street cred to say, I've done it here. I Did, uh, you know, some of this information is sold on, on the dark web or, or underground websites. And there's not there's not a ton of value in it. You know there's you know credit card numbers they're they're sold in, in bunches pretty cheaply. I, I think the the real value for attackers who are trying to steal personal identifiable information and 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 stuff like that is stealing identities and trying to open up credit cards and and do things fraudulently um, under people's identities. I think that's where we're seeing a lot of a lot of the harm coming from opening up new loans and bank accounts and credit cards.
0: Yeah, I get you. It's it's pretty, pretty frightening. But again, I think I continue to be surprised at how much information there is about you out there that you don't know. Like you were saying, you know, the things that that you deploy to crawl the web to find things about your infrastructure. Well, I'm assuming that you have the same ability to find about people and how that works. So it's a frightening thing. As a business owner, like I said, after I get done hyperventilating over all of this, you know, so what are what are some of the small cost effective steps that I can do? I know you said, you know, password policies and such. Give me three steps. What can I do today to make my my business more secure and ultimately more valuable? Because someone like you is going to show up and and test and determine whether or not I'm how risky the acquisition is so what are the steps and I, don't care, I said three but if there's five or however many I, I don't care but what are what are those things that I can do today that will help me preserve the value I have in my company
1: so security doesn't have to be implemented overnight you know, when we talk about security this is more of a marathon than a sprint and that's, that's important to remember that you're not going to do it overnight there the first step's always going to be to select a control framework whether that's uh, the NIST Cybersecurity Framework, or the Center for Internet Security Top 20. But these frameworks tell you exactly here's what you need to do to bolster the security of the organization. So after you selected your framework, um, then you need to perform a risk assessment and map your internal controls back to that framework to see what are you doing well within the organization and what are some areas you can improve on. And third-party organizations can do this. You can do this internally as a self-assessment, but it's important to to get an idea of where you are internally before you start implementing all these controls. I can tell you the three big areas that we look at um, in every organization right away are perimeter security. Do you have the correct perimeter security devices in place? Do you have a firewall in place? Do you have antivirus in place? Those things that will help to hopefully keep out some of the threat actors. And the other things we're going to look at is how is your patching? How are you doing your operating system patching? Are you missing critical patches or are you pushing those out on a regular basis? And then beyond the operating system patching, how are you patching things like Adobe or Java or iTunes, those other applications that might not be included in your patch management program. And then the final thing we usually look at is surrounding access controls. And that can be how is your password policy, are you using multi-factor authentication, and then what user-level permissions are there. Are users local, administrator on the network? Or are, do they follow the least, principle of least privilege where they have as little access as necessary to do their job?
0: Having said that, we're seeing that there is cyber insurance, like cybersecurity insurance. Do you guys deal in any of that? I know you don't sell it, but I'm certain that you either are an advocate for it or you've seen it work or not work. Any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. Cyber insurance is, is a great tool, but it's a reactive tool. So, it's only helps you after you have had an incident or been breached. It's not helping to actively prevent that. Um, that being said, you know, just like your home or car insurance, that it, it does serve a benefit and can help you ease the burden, financial burden after an incident. Because a lot of times there's there's more than just the settlements or fines that you see in the news. There's a lot of other costs associated with an incident. If anybody's looking for cyber insurance, some things to to maybe look at and consider when evaluating different policies make sure you know what you're buying. A lot of the policies will will range widely. Um, we've seen some policies that will cover uh, ransomware ransom, while others will will not cover that. So make sure you know what you're buying, and make sure you're buying from a reputable vendor. There's nothing worse than uh, finding yourself in an incident, going to your cyber insurance provider, and then finding out that uh, their, the coverage wasn't there or there's maybe some misleading things that you should have noticed up front. So make sure you're buying from a reputable vendor too.
0: Yeah. And a lot of insurances that it's already embedded in in their existing insurance. I didn't know if there were like new riders and things like that based on the the platform that the business owner is running on, whether or not they're you know, you can, you know, if you're a 100 percent cloud based, your risk is lower because you have a third party that's managing your security, you know, versus a, you know, a server closet that has to be considerably different, especially in a small business environment where, you know, that small business owner tends to be in charge of, you know, making sure that the updates are being done and such. So, you know, does insurance differ? And I know that's probably out of your, a little bit out of your wheelhouse, but um, have you heard or no?
1: So the cyber insurance providers we've, we've talked to, um, typically they'll come out and do some kind of assessment on the organization, see what what risk that organization has and so i think that's where it comes into play where are you cloud-based or do you have it on-premise in a, in a data closet somewhere and then based on that i think they'll start offering you the different um policy um, prices and stuff like that so yeah
0: I, I follow you so is there any softwares you endorse i know you and i are, are LastPass fans anything else that you would suggest
1: yeah. So as a company, we don't really resell software or tools. There's nothing we endorse necessarily as a company. One tool I have heard of recently is a tool called Priva. That's P-R-I-V-V-A. And that's a great tool for vendor risk management for organizations who need to evaluate the, the risk maybe their vendors are posing to their organization. Wow. Um, that, that's a pretty cool tool we, we, we've seen a little bit, um, when working with some of our clients that, uh, we've liked, uh, we've liked recently.
0: Well, okay. So, when we first met and and I know we're short on time, but you had introduced me to um me to Darknet Diaries. And for those of you that are looking for uh, an interesting podcast and this is in your wheelhouse. I mean, it's a it's a fascinating fascinating podcast about the dark web and the things and the people behind some of the biggest infiltrations and I don't say bad stuff, but bad stuff that happens on the internet. So we were originally to talk about this on Friday the thirteenth, and then this uh, little pandemic broke out, so we had to table it. So, without naming names, do you have uh, any story that shows the the risk that the businesses that you guys are serving, uh, anything that uh, the Mako Group can share that would make people cringe?
1: I think one of the more the more scary things we can do these days, and we're doing on our red team and pen testing engagement is what we call IPV six takeover. So IPV six. Is a network address on the internal network usually, and it's handed out by default by most routers. So when when a computer connects to the network, it'll request this IPv6 address, and it'll be assigned one by the router. We've got a way to intercept that IPv6 request and then potentially launch remote code on the system requesting the IPv6 address. If we can launch code onto that system. Uh, we're able to to do a lot of malicious things. Sometimes we get right in there and we already have privileged access on the machine. We can start doing some real nasty things. Other times we can start uh, trying to search for data on that machine or try to dump password hashes or clear text passwords on the machine. And from there, it's pretty trivial to start pivoting throughout the network, accessing other machines and servers throughout.
0: So, what's the best way that we can connect with you in the Mako group?
1: Best way to, to connect with uh, myself would be on LinkedIn. Uh, if you're looking to, to connect with the MAKO group, you can visit our website, at makopro.com, or also uh, we're out, we're pretty active on LinkedIn there as well.
0: I'll certainly have links to everything that we talked about in the show notes, but the services that you provide, I mean, what what's the service that you would suggest that if a business owner was thinking either about selling the company or just to evaluate whether or not they're... Whether they're secure, what's the first step in contacting the maker group? And then from there, you know, what is basically the process to engage you? Uh,
1: if you're looking to to engage with the maker group, like you said, visiting our website, reaching out from there, we can talk about what what your needs are. And it's really going to be kind of customized to, to what you're looking for, what you're looking to do. The first step, I think, to evaluating any kind of acquisition or anything like that would be to, to do a risk assessment over the organization you're looking to acquire and see what they have in place, what they're maybe missing, and see if those deficiencies are, are, are significant enough to, to pose a high risk and make it a high risk possible environment. Or if they're small enough, where they can be easily connected, corrected, and, and integrated into the um, new
0: environment. As far as cost goes, it's, it's just a, a it, it's a scope thing. It, I'm assuming it, it depends on you know how extensive your testing is, as well as how big the, the organization is. Right?
1: Absolutely, it's all, all scope based, all all customized right. and individualized to the to the client. So right. the not going to break the bank, but it is uh, it is scope based.
0: Well, Brandon, you know what? Really, I'm I'm so glad that we had the the chance to to visit, and I appreciate you sharing the your experiences. And I do believe that there is technological risk, and this is something that will help business owners preserve their value. So, as Brandon uh, said, you know, if you go to mako dot com, you can learn a little bit more about the the Mako Group, or you can reach Brandon on LinkedIn. And like I said, I will have. Uh, links in the show notes. So Brandon, thank you so much again for being here and being a defender of business value.
1: Thank you. Appreciate the time.
0: This was another episode of the Defenders of Business Value podcast. For more episodes packed with strategies to increase the value of your business, visit defendersofbusinessvalue.com for show notes, transcripts, and free tools to start you on your journey. Subscribe now so you don't miss any future episodes.